The question we're going to ask this morning is, what is God's kingdom worth? What is his, what is his kingdom worth? Uh, I think it was the last song we sang, Thou Art Worthy. A uh, very appropriate song for today's message. And we're going to look at two parables. We're going to kind of consider them as one, though there are a few differences we might notice. But uh, the parables of the treasure and the pearl, sometimes called the pearl of great price, but the parables of the treasure, the parable of the treasure and the parable of the pearl. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. So two parables in three verses. A lot of, uh, a lot of bang for your buck there. So um, would you pray with me? Father, be with us. Uh, we know you are, but remind us of that. As we take a look at the word you've so graciously given to us, um, there's something in this passage, in these two parables that you want us to see. And maybe it's something a little different for each one of us. And we just pray that there would be no hindrances or, or no obstacles um, to you speaking to us this morning. Um, we thank you for uh, your commitment and your faithfulness to us to not leave us where we are, but to continually bring about the image of Jesus in each one of us more and more so uh, until the very end. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So last week, Gil Burns, little Gil, all right? He asked me how old I was. I told him I was 43, and he replied, well, you look like you're about 20 or something. <laughs> Smartest first grader I know. I was born 43 years ago, but and as I've shared fairly recently, I was reborn 30 years ago in the spring of 1989. I really didn't think about it until this week, but 2019 marks the 30th year of me being a follower of Jesus Christ. I used to think about that a lot. I used to think about my spiritual birthday. Um, and, and maybe some of you don't have like a date, and that's, I, I totally get that. And that's, you know, in some ways it's great. But I do. I have a date and a moment that I, at least from my perspective, that I look back. And I used to, uh, let's see, it would have been when I turned 26. That was an important one to me because that marked me being a Christian for 13 years, and I was not a Christian for 13 years, so I figured I should be about, you know, like halfway there, um, but it doesn't quite work out that way. So after 30 years, I really don't know how far along I am, but over those 30 years of being in the church and of observing what goes on in the church and in the name of Jesus, I've observed a lot of people coming in and going out of the church, not just the physical church building, that would be kind of a pointless observation. All of you came in this morning, and hopefully all of you will go out, but not before you help clean up after the potluck, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church as the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, which I think is more than the church, but certainly not less than the church. Some have entered the kingdom, and some have departed, or perhaps defected would be a more accurate term. And just an aside, 
I just wanted to mention this. Even though we're talking about life in the kingdom now, life in the present kingdom, we know that not even death itself, the greatest weapon our enemy has or thought he had, not even death itself can remove you from God's kingdom. And neither can that enemy ever overcome the church that Jesus is building. So if you are a citizen now, then death not only is unable to cancel your citizenship, but in a way that I think must really drive the enemy crazy, his ultimate weapon becomes a tool in God's hand that in a way prepares us for our complete, our full, our whole citizenship, where one day we will see him face to face instead of through a veil, as the New Testament puts it. We'll be face to face with our king. But people come and people go, and they often do both of those things for the wrong reasons. Many try to enter God's kingdom out of fear. And many do enter God's kingdom out of fear. Because many were given a message of fear, motivated by fear. As a teenager, the flames of hell and the end times seemed to be the primary themes we heard every chance we had to hear it. In fact, Ivan mentioned this morning, there are signs. We should be looking at those signs. But that's not all of the message. I believe judgment is real. I believe Jesus will return. But there's a big problem when those themes become the primary, if not the only message that many hear to motivate someone to pledge their loyalty to King Jesus. Not always. Because really, that's how I entered the kingdom. So I know this from experience. Um, I entered the kingdom based on that kind of message. I learned later that that wasn't the complete message. But not always, but often, that kind of message leads to salvation as fire insurance. Right? Do you know what I mean? Many of us spend a lot of money on insurance. Life, health, home, car, long-term care. But the cost is justified in light of the fear, right? We're fear, fearful of death, of fire, of flood, earthquake, illness, and so on, even if it's not a fear of what will happen to you, but maybe a fear of those whom we leave behind having to sort out all kinds of chaos. I think insurance is okay. <laughs> I think it's it can be very wise, okay? So I'm not, I, I have insurance. So uh, I'm not saying cancel your insurance just, just so you don't mishear me. Um, insurance can be wise, and being motivated by fear can be a proper kind of motivation. For example, before I cross the street, I look both ways, usually a couple of times, because I'm fearful of having to use my health insurance if I don't, right? So fear in some contexts can be a, a good motivation. But the thing about insurance 
is that it doesn't demand anything from us other than a small portion of our money. And in fact, having insurance can even cause some people to take risks they wouldn't take if they didn't have it. The problem with entering into God's kingdom as insurance against hell and insurance against judgment is that that approach doesn't demand much from us either. Our salvation is simply like an insurance card, something we file away. Yeah, it had some cost. We had to fill out some paperwork to get it, but we put it in our wallet or our purse or in a filing cabinet, and we don't ever think about it until the threat of something bad happens. We only recognize the benefits of insurance when we experience things that are going wrong. While others may enter for wrong reasons, like I just mentioned, some leave for wrong reasons. Not that there is ever a right reason for leaving if you've properly understood God's kingdom. But for many, Christianity is simply an add-on. It's simply one of many adjectives in their lives, used in many ways. Christian music, Christian movies, Christian school, a Christian worldview, Christian news. Who knew there was such a thing as Christian news? How would it be different from other news? I don't know, but it is. Someone might ask, are you a Christian? Sure, I'm a Christian, and I'm an independent, or I'm a Republican, and I'm a teacher, or I'm a banker, and I'm an American, and so on and so on. You see, when being a Christian, a citizen of God's kingdom is just an add-on. Just a club you've joined, then it's easy to walk away when it's no longer convenient or comfortable or when the obvious benefits aren't so obvious anymore. Or maybe it's one of these things that cost you so little that it's just as easy to hang on to it as it is to go through the trouble of canceling your membership. You ever joined something like that? Maybe you mistakenly signed up for something that cost you a dollar or two a month and you're like, ah, the hassle of canceling that right isn't worth the hassle of you know a few dollars a month there's a commercial out now for some kind of app for some i think like an online bank that will alert you of all these monthly things so you it it sends you reminders that the gym membership you're paying for every month right that you haven't been to in two years like that's still there and still coming out of your account for some people who claim the name of Jesus, that's kind of how their faith is. But I think today's parables, the parable of the treasure and the parable of the pearl, will tell us about the ultimate value and the ultimate cost of the kingdom and will help us to avoid those two kinds of errors, the errors of entering for the wrong reasons and the error of not staying for the wrong reasons. So let's take a look at these parables. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had 
and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The meaning of these parables is pretty simple and pretty straightforward, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you. I do want to take a moment to look at some cultural background, because there are some elements to the parables that might be a little different, a little maybe even alarming to you. Um, It was common in ancient times, and even common today, maybe in some cultures or some uh, parts of the world. I don't know anyone who has done this recently, but... It's, it's, it wasn't uncommon to bury your valuables when something like war or an invasion or some kind of destructive threat was looming. And then when the threat of go- was gone or when you returned from war, you would dig up what you had buried. But what happens if you don't return? What happens if your land is taken by force? What would happen is years later, someone else might purchase that land containing your buried treasure. And the custom, and maybe even the law, it's hard to tell, was that if you owned the land, you owned the treasure buried in your land. It was not common to find this. It's not, it was like winning the ancient lottery. So we find this man in the first parable For some reason, digging in land he didn't own. So what was he doing? Like I said, it's like winning the lottery. He certainly wasn't trying to find the treasure. Maybe he was plowing or digging for the landowner. But nonetheless, he finds this treasure. Regarding the pearl... We don't know a lot about the pearl business from the Bible. In fact, pearls are not even mentioned in the Old Testament. And if you see the word pearl in the Old Testament, it's a generic term that just means gem or a precious stone or something like that. It doesn't show up until the New Testament. And outside of Matthew and Revelation, the only other place the word pearl occurs is in 1 Timothy 2.9, where Paul is talking about women dressing modestly. So I guess back in that day, pearls were considered immodest. More so, they were a flaunt of wealth. But it's a rare term, and we just don't know much about what would have been going on with this merchant and his his, um, search for, for these pearls. There are some differences between these two parables. Notice in the treasure, the man just happens to find it. He's not looking for the treasure. He's going about his work, and he finds it. In the parable of the pearl, the merchant is seeking after it. So there is a difference. Another difference is that in the parable of the pearl, Jesus mentions the man's joy, and that's important. It doesn't mean the merchant wasn't likewise joyful. I'm sure he was. So those are just a few differences. Uh, I noticed, too, in the parable of the pearl, 
I'm sorry, in the parable of the treasure, he gets way more than he pays for, right? He play he pays for the the land, but the impression we get is that the treasure is worth far more than just the land, which is probably why he's so joyful to sell all he has to buy it. But in the parable of the pearl, it's more of a business transaction. But surely he's getting the pearl at a really good price. Even though it's worth everything he has to purchase it, the pearl itself must be worth far more. So what's it mean? I think it's pretty simple. The treasure and the pearl represent God's kingdom, his reign. The man and the merchant are people entering that kingdom. The price they pay represents all that they have, all that they are, their lives and their livelihoods. I want to stop here and say, don't misunderstand this. The price they pay doesn't mean that citizenship in the kingdom of God can be purchased, that it's somehow for sale. But the price they pay represents the value of the kingdom. I'm going to read just for a, it's a lengthy quote, and I apologize for that. I don't usually do that at all, but um, from a really fantastic book on the parables called Stories with Intent by a gentleman, by a New Testament scholar named Klein Snodgrass. Um, listen to what he says. This is what these parables mean. He says, our relation with God is the most important part of life. All our other pursuits are trivial by comparison. More specifically, understanding what God has done in Christ and following Christ are more valuable than all we possess or seek. God's call trumps all else in life, and it is worth it. He goes on, we also need to realize what time it is. If the kingdom is present, radical response is needed now. If the kingdom is worth all we have, then joy and celebration should accompany our finding and involvement with the kingdom. The problem with most of us is that we would like a little of the kingdom as an add-on to the rest of our lives. We want to hedge our bets. You cannot hedge your bets with the kingdom. These parables urge us to abandon what we thought was the focus of life and focus entirely on what God is doing with the kingdom. The gospel we proclaim, the gospel we proclaim must deserve and explain the label treasure. And our lives must express the ultimate value find found in Christ. Let me read that last line. The gospel we proclaim must deserve and explain the label treasure, and our lives must express the ultimate value found in Christ. So does the gospel we proclaim deserve the label treasure? Does the gospel we proclaim explain the, the label treasure? It's a good question. I want to answer a couple of questions here. 
First of all, why is the kingdom so valuable? In this parable, it's worth everything that these two men possess. They're joyful. They're eager. There's nothing begrudging about their selling of everything they have in order to possess this treasure. So why? Why is it so valuable? And I'm sure there are a lot of answers to this, a lot of good and helpful answers. But two things stand out to me in light of these parables, some of the other parables we've talked about, and the context of what's going on in Matthew. And just to remind you, we're like right in the middle of Matthew. We're right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. And the eagerness with which people first followed Jesus when they saw a miracle or two or heard a teaching or two has waned. Now Jesus and his followers are facing increasing opposition. And so we have parables like this. Last week we talked about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right? That was last week, right? (laughs) I think so. Uh, the, The point of that parable is that in the wisdom of God, he allows his kingdom to grow in the presence of evil and will not remove that evil until the end. And we don't know why, but we trust his wisdom. Likewise, in this parable, I think his primary audience is the disciples. And he's talking to them about the cost and the value of following him. So why is it so valuable? First, I think it's supremely valuable because it costs Jesus his very life. And there's a temptation to be like, yeah, but it was like three days and he was resurrected. So like maybe not that big of a deal. No. It's not just the death of Jesus that's part of the cost. It's supremely valuable because it costs Jesus his life. The son of God became a slave. The king of kings became a servant. The second person of the Trinity emptied himself to become one of us. And he didn't do this so that he could conquer or reign like we would have expected, like the people of his day would have expected, like even some of his closest friends would have expected. But he did this to suffer and to die. Now, in suffering and dying, he does indeed conquer and reign over the ultimate enemy, but in a way that no one expected and with a timing that no one expected. The kingdom is so valuable because it cost him so much. Second, the kingdom is so valuable for what it accomplishes. The kingdom that cost Jesus so much works to restore all things to their original state and purpose and works to reconcile all things, even creation itself, Paul tells us, to their creator. To undo what was done in Adam and redone in all of us over and over again is of infinite value, as much as there was in the original creation itself. The trouble is that it's easy to give lip service to all of this, right? To to say, yes, I acknowledge the kingdom is supremely valuable. 
I acknowledge that it costs Jesus so much. I acknowledge that it accomplishes so much. It's easy to give lip service to all of that, but then to go on about our lives much as we had before. So I think at this point we could benefit from some examples. First, I'm going to start with some negative examples. I'm just going to mention these briefly. Some who were not willing to consider God's kingdom as supremely valuable. Going back to the Old Testament, I think of many of the kings and even moments in the lives of those we might call good kings. But there were many bad and evil kings. You can read about them in First and Second Kings. The lure of riches, of women, and false but manageable gods caused many of them to forsake the ultimate supreme value of what God wanted to do. We come into the New Testament and we have Jesus' opponents, many of whom are religious leaders. They fail to recognize the supreme value of what God is doing in Christ because it didn't meet their expectations. They had created a kind of religious life that was manageable and predictable. And when Jesus couldn't be managed or predicted, they oppose him and conspire to kill him. A great example that follows along well with these parables would be uh, the man we call the rich young ruler. You can read about this in Luke 18, but many of you may know the story. This rich young ruler asked Jesus what must he do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, follow the Ten Commandments. The rich young ruler says, I have. And Jesus says, good. Now sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we're told that he walked away sad because he was extremely wealthy. I get the impression from this story that the rich young ruler wanted to know about how to inherit eternal life, right? Because he wanted the add-on. He was already rich. He was already obedient, he just wanted what Jesus was offering, too, and didn't understand the supreme value of what Jesus was offering and was not willing to give it all away. Judas, one of the twelve. Why did he betray Jesus? Some say because he loved money. He was sort of the treasurer, the keeper of the purse, of their group. Maybe there is a reason for that. Most think Judas betrayed Jesus when he realized that Jesus was not going to meet his expectation of delivering Israel from Rome in an immediate and a violent way. I don't know. He either loved money or his expectations weren't met. Maybe both. But he betrays Jesus because he didn't understand the supreme value of what God was doing in Christ here on this earth. But we have other examples 
of individuals and groups of people who were willing to acknowledge and to live their lives like God's program was supremely valuable. A lot of examples you could go to. Some of these are good because they're not perfect people in many ways. Abraham, right? The call to Abraham to leave his land, to leave his relatives, to leave his father's people, and to become a foreigner in a strange land. I don't know know what else Abraham knew or didn't know, but he valued the call of God and God's program more than his land and his family. We can look at Joseph. Joseph wasn't perfect by no means, but he obeyed God at a great cost to himself. His obedience put his very life at risk. And then Daniel. Michaela was reading the little book before church, or maybe during church. (laughs) Daniel in the lion's den, right? I think one of the most profound and helpful statements in all of the Bible when we're faced with a situation that might cause us to lose faith and maybe has caused many to lose faith. Daniel and his friends are going to be thrown to the lions. They're going to be thrown to the lions for their refusal to worship and to pray to false gods. Listen to what Daniel says. This is in Daniel chapter 3. I think it's verse 7. He says to the king, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, Daniel gets it. Daniel gets the supreme and surpassing value of what God is doing, of God's kingdom. We like the first part. We want to claim that God is able to deliver us from whatever it is that we need delivered from. And we might even be confident that he will. But so much of our faith and sometimes almost all of our joy depends on that turning out the way we want it to. But Daniel says, even if he does not, we won't bow down. We won't serve your gods. How about the disciples? You know, leaving their fishing boats and their nets, and their businesses, and going to follow Jesus cost them their careers. And for many, it meant leaving their families. The fishing business was a family business. And for these men to leave their nets behind and follow Jesus would have caused hardship for the rest of their family. But they saw something in Jesus that told them he is worth following He is worth leaving behind my business and even my family if necessary. 
think one of the best examples is in Luke 7, verses 37, 36, 37, 38. Let me read it for you. It might not be an obvious example at first, but let me read it. Now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. So Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee having dinner. Think about what that means. And remember I mentioned before that these dinners were not intimate affairs, but they would have been like semi-public events. There was no shutting the door and pretending no one's home when someone knocks. Luke 7:37. Then when a woman of that town who was a sinner, and that means a prostitute, when she learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfumed oil. First of all, this woman gave up whatever dignity she had left. And maybe it wasn't much. But for a, a woman in her line of business to enter a Pharisee's home and approach Jesus in this way makes all of us a bit uncomfortable. Second, she gave the most valuable thing she had to Jesus. This jar of perfume would have been a very expensive item, probably her most valued possession. And notice this. She gave her very livelihood. A woman in her profession would have found great importance in how she smelled. Think about that. She gives it to Jesus. She saw something in him that told her that whatever it was he was offering... Forgiveness, grace, salvation, the whole bundle, it's worth everything she has. It's worth her most valued, valued possession. It's worth her very career. And it's worth sacrificing whatever dignity she had left. The pages of church history are filled with others who've understood the supreme value of God's kingdom and who have given all for this great treasure. I'm sure that many of you could tell stories from your own lives, from the lives of those who have inspired you and maybe mentored you in the faith that would resemble some of the stories we've talked about this morning. I just want to encourage you to tell those stories. Sometimes we need to tell them to ourselves. Tell them to me. Tell them to others because we need to hear them. So what is our message? If our message is to deserve and to explain the labeled treasure, what is that message? 
I want to say to you this morning that the message is this. Become a citizen of God's kingdom. You will receive so much more than an insurance policy that you'll keep tucked away and hope you never have to use. Jesus' sacrifice to purchase you means that you are of infinite worth to him. And if to him, then to me also on my better days. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. I, You know, uh, there's an influential preacher in my life. He doesn't know me. <laughs> but he says this over and over. Look at the person you're hating. Look at the person that you're in conflict or in drama with and see that person has infinite value. Even your enemy has infinite value to Jesus. And if he has or she has infinite value to Jesus, then she must and he must have infinite value to you. He wants to reconcile you to your creator. But I'll tell you this, it doesn't mean that he'll fix all of your problems and answer all of your prayers right now. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, about what Jesus promises to do and what I can expect from him. I'm trying to boil that down to one thing. And I think it's this. The ultimate promise Jesus gives us is that he will deliver us safely into the coming kingdom at the end of all things. That means he might heal you, that he might heal your loved ones, and that he might not. That means that he might... Reconcile the broken relationships in your life and that he might not. But if there's one thing you can expect, one thing you can bank on, and there are, um, there are others, but ultimately Jesus promises to deliver us to his Father, to deliver us into that kingdom safely without losing anyone. Until then, we will suffer. Until then, we will die. But we will know that he has conquered sin and death. And that we will be delivered from both. So I, I'm done. <laughs> I was thinking about two songs. But if you look at them a certain way, and they're songs that a lot of you know, um, I grew up in a Baptist church and sang them all the time. In fact, one of them we've, we've, uh, we've, we sing here periodically. I surrender all, right? Makes liars out of us all. We don't surrender all, but it's a good thing to sing about, right? It's the goal. Nothing wrong with singing that. Um, in fact, it's pretty healthy to sing that kind of song. And while you're singing it, to think, what have I not surrendered? There's another song. I don't know if I've heard it here since we've been here, but I'm sure um, it's in the hymnal. Just as I am. Right? So which one is it? Is it I surrender all? Or is it just as I am? When I surrendered to Jesus at age 13, 
Did I know I was surrendering all? I didn't. Didn't know that. And over 30 years, I've learned that I don't even know what all is. The definition seems to be growing. <laughs> or maybe what I thought was part of all when I was young turns out not to be that important at all. So my understanding of what it means to surrender all is changing. But I still come, and he still accepts us just as we are. So think about that. Think about what you can do. Think about what this church can do to make sure that our message deserves and explains the label treasure. And I hope that that brings great joy to you. The problem earlier I talked about with the motivation of fear is that fear in the absence of joy is simply, it's simply fire insurance, right? It demands nothing from us. It really means nothing to us until we're in trouble. But we look to Jesus himself as our example. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, that Jesus himself, who endured the cross, why? For the joy. One of the craziest statements. He endured the cross for the joy set before him for the joy promised him, for the joy that he anticipated, he endured the cross. And that's got to be our approach to entering in and to maintaining life in this present kingdom. Yeah, there's judgment, right? There's consequence. But when you understand the supreme value of God's kingdom, then giving up your all for it should be a joyful endeavor. So would you pray with me? Father, uh, we're unable to do this in our own strength. If left to our own, you would just, uh, our commitment to you would just be something that we would try to manipulate and use for our own agenda for our own benefit, for our own comfort and ease. But the message of your kingdom demands much more from us. It demands from us a radical response that we're willing to give it all. Father, and show us what that means as a church and as individuals. Make your call on us loud and clear. And I pray that we would never come to the point where we just think we have it all figured out. That long before we get there, that you would just continuing opening doors in our lives that we have closed off to you and maybe don't even know about it. That we would keep and continually surrender all to you. All that we have, all that we know. And I pray that you would be patient with us as we try and as we fail. That you would restore us to yourself and restore us to each other, that we might strengthen and encourage one another. And this is all for your glory. Even ultimately to, to be delivered into your 
perfect kingdom at the end of all things. When you exact justice and we're delivered through it all safely. But that's all for your glory too. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.